Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Using my credit card, Miles. They couldn't black us out forever. But Dad, it's summer. What are you, a weatherman? All right, who's up for a little double diamond? Last one down's a coward. I'm okay. They need a Capital One card. For easy-to-use rewards, get Capital One no-hassle rewards with no blackouts on any airline, anytime. Kids, look at this! What's in your wallet? What's in your wallet? Those ubiquitous Capital One commercials are everywhere. Mildly amusing, mostly annoying. But they pose a revealing question. What's in your wallet? So, what is in your wallet? Literally, I mean. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Let's do it like they did on the playground. Here's what's in mine. I'll show you. I'll begin with my, uh, with my trusty MasterCard there. You can't really even see my name sign in the back. It's been swiped so many times. After MasterCard, I have over here, here's my Visa uh, debit card. That's in there. I want to make sure I can, you know, both sides of the plate, MasterCard, Visa. And then I've got uh, Amex in here somewhere. Where did Amex go? Amex, because we thought that would be good because it forces you to pay off your bill every month. You can still see my name. It's not used very often. Uh, and then I've got a, another, uh, another bank one visa here, I guess, just, you know, just, for, just for good measure. Four. Not, not bad for a, for a pastor, right? Come on. Um, but many of you have, have more, don't you? Well, I'll go toe-to-toe with you, actually, because I I went into our special little drawer at home in our office where we keep our special cards that we have accumulated along the way. And uh, what these are, these little, these are, we are totally suckers for that person who goes, well, listen, you got all this great stuff, but if you open a credit account today with Macy's, everything you buy is an extra 20% off, and we're like, we'd be fools. We're about, all about saving money. So here are Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Express. Uh, we've got uh, Joseph A. Banks. I like, must have bought Thai one time. Uh, Home Depot. All right, Home Depot. Uh, here's another MasterCard, uh, Citibank one. Uh, a Saks first. I can't imagine what we ever bought at Saks. This must have gotten sent to us. Uh, domain, I guess, Furniture. And, uh, and Bailey, Banks, and Biddle. I bought Colleen something nice one time for, for, uh, for a birthday. And then, I guess, another uh, fleet, Platinum, because we have moved up in the world. So here we are. My, well, let me get them all together. Hold on. Let me get them all together here now, okay? Yeah, I know I dropped one. I'm hoping to lose that one. Uh, so much plastic, so little time. <laughs> Each one of these cards I've either signed up for over the years or I've been sent unsolicited. But each one has at one time or another been used. We are a nation of debtors, of spenders, of credit users. The three most popular letters in the English language for many of us are vowels. I, O, U. When it comes to money, they say there are two kinds of people, really. The haves and the have-nots. But I think there's a third category. Those who have not paid for what they have. (laughs) Debt. I mean, uh, many of you know what I'm talking about. With the mere mention of that four-letter word, I immediately actually, in the dark, even here, see some of your eyes kind of looking down. You're hitting the floor. You're avoiding eye contact because you're embarrassed. And you don't need to be reminded about how burdensome financial debt can be. 
But if the statistics are to be believed in a crowd this size, you're actually hardly alone, so don't feel bad. Quick quiz. True or false? We'll start easy. Americans carry $7.3 billion in personal debt, not including real estate and mortgages. False. Americans carry $7.3 trillion in personal debt, not even factoring in home mortgages. See, we're all optimists. (laughs) Individually, every American, each average American carries $8,000 in unpaid debt at any time. That's for the average American. And you may be thinking, finally, I'm, I'm above average when it comes to a subject in church. All right. That's not even factoring in mortgages. Newsweek says that about 60% of Americans spend more annually than their income. Leads us to our second quiz question. Which activity did more Americans do in the mid-90s? A, graduate from college, or B, declare bankruptcy? (laughs) B, in the mid-90s, more than 1 million Americans declared bankruptcy. That's three times as many as in the previous decade. And that statistic continues to rise. Americans have more than 1 billion credit cards, actually. And less than a third of all people, credit card holders, pay off their balances each month. It's a, it's a little bit human nature, and it's a little bit cultural conditioning, obviously. On average, Americans actually save, you know what percent of their income they save? 4% in contrast to the Japanese who save an average of 16%. Our nation is a nation of debtors. Charge it! That should be kind of our, our personal anthem as a people. Well, I wanted to conclude our series on money and possessions tonight by briefly looking at the primary causes of debt, because you might be surprised, and then actually highlight some tools to get out of it. And I'm going to end by kind of introducing you to a life-giving approach to manage your earnings, your spending, and saving going forward in a way that I I think is helpful and and, and, and leads to some sense of financial sanity. Uh, Because the Bible is not silent on this topic. Not at all. And living debt-free is a crucial issue if you're serious about following Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said famously, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. Anyone acquainted with the heavy burden of financial debt knows that life is not easy and light. (laughs) When you're running as fast as you can to keep up with minimum payments and you've got creditors knocking down your door. I came across this post on our blog at liquidchurch.com. It's from a brother named Brian, and he wrote very honestly about his struggle with financial health. He wrote, I find that, like many things, money is both a blessing and a curse, depending on the day. For three years, I have taught high school English and lived in Hunterdon County. For the first year, I rented the house where I lived, and then I decided, mostly out of convenience, to buy it. I was lucky enough to have a very decent salary, but between all of the expenses of owning a home and living alone and a mortgage, I found I was very quickly overwhelmed by expenses. There was no way to get everything done and everything paid off. And it felt a lot like drowning, only when you're drowning, the immediacy of the dilemma demands attention, (laughs) and you find very few drowning people who can deny that they're drowning. (laughs) It's totally possible to avoid and neglect a financial nightmare like the one I found myself in at the time. I've gone through all periods where I haven't picked up the phone if I didn't recognize who it is because I haven't wanted to talk to potential creditors. Those are miserable phone calls, especially when they're pushy and I don't have a plan or an idea of what I want to accomplish. The last thing I want to do is pay bills or be responsible, and I've decided I don't know how anyway. So while my first year of living alone, I was conscientious and then some about getting the bills played, Two years down the road, I've given up. 
I crisis manage and only pay bills when I'm badgered by creditors or when it's absolutely necessary. And I've never felt worse about my financial life and my ability, inability to deal with life. The most malicious, insidious thing about affluenza and debt is that it usually does not occur as an emergency. And we're lulled into the sense that we can coast forever. Besides those pesky phone calls and other reminders of how deep I had dug the hole, I really believe I could go on forever in debt, just shy of completely breaking down financially but never quite snapping. I almost think that's the whole point of the credit card mentality in our country, to keep us strapped, completely at a loss with money, so unempowered we can barely squeak by. Appreciate his courage and honesty. As I said, debt is something with which most of us are well acquainted So you think we would actually know something about it, right? I mean, what really are the key causes of debt? You might be surprised. Because according to the Bible, it's not lack of money. (laughs) Most people think, well, I'm in debt because I don't have enough money. It's pretty obvious. Wrong. (laughs) A lack of money is actually not the number one cause of debt, as most think. Debt is caused by a lack, but not a lack of money. Rather, a lack of contentment. That's the first primary cause of debt according to the Bible. Lack of contentment. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy 6. That's our orienting scripture tonight. Um, the, the pew Bibles are there. You can pull them out. I referenced this passage earlier in our series, and now we're coming kind of full loop. Paul is writing to Timothy, his apprentice. And Timothy was a young man, most likely in his 20s or his early 30s. And Paul was writing and gave him key counsel regarding finances in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Read with me. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is an elusive thing in our world, is it not? (laughs) I mean, to be content, really truly satisfied with what one has. It's the art of saying, enough. (laughs) What I have actually is enough, and I don't need more. And what happens when you're content, the result is this kind of inner peace, right, that pervades our spirit. But we are not easily contented or satisfied, are we? (laughs) At least not with the basics, because the major blindness of our age is put in sharp relief right here by Paul. And you see it? It's the inability to distinguish between needs versus wants. (laughs) You know the difference, right? What are the most basic needs for human beings? Yeah, Paul actually names two here in verse 8. Look, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Sure, something to eat. (laughs) Shirt on my back. Maybe add a third. What else could you add? Shelter, right? Place to stay. The basics. These are fundamental needs of every human being. But most often, having our basic needs met is not enough. We are not content with that. I remember when I first began expanding that word need in middle school. (laughs) When I wanted parachute pants. All right, I came of age in the early 80s, right? But mom, I need them. 
everyone has a pair, right? And mom said, look, your dungarees, your Levi's are just fine. We're not paying $50 for a pair of nylon pants that make you look like a goofball. <laughs> so I took it to appeal to my dad. Dad, I need those pants you don't understand. And I remember him correcting me. He was like, no, Tim, you want a pair of parachute pants. And I was like, this isn't about grammar. <laughs> I need them, right? I thought he was like getting technical on word choice. But he was introducing this idea of distinguishing between needs and wants. Wants are what go beyond the basics and into the realm of what might be desirable, actually, but not actually essential for our day-to-day living. You can't have just clothes. We need stuff that's in style, <laughs> that's fashionable. You need to look good. This is what Paul calls in verse 9, foolish and harmful desires, wants. The stuff that doesn't last. Paul says that stuff, you brought nothing into the world, the stuff you can't even take out of it. When you expand your need for the basics to include stuff that's temporarily pleasure-inducing, seems kind of important, but actually it leads to what, Paul says? Ruin and destruction. Let's see how well everyone here, I know this is like, you're like, oh, I learned this lesson in fourth grade. Let's see how well you did learn the lesson, distinguishing between needs and wants. I'm going to invite you to participate. You can call out. I'm going to show you a few things, and you yell out as soon as you see it, need or want, okay? Ready? Home, a place to live. (laughs) That was great. There was like, need, home, okay. Okay. Yeah, everyone would kind of agree. This is kind of like the basic shelter, right? The shelter's a basic need of all human beings, whether it's a house or an apartment, condo, whatever. But, but look at this. Okay, so let's say, let's confess this is a need. You need a place to live. So here it is. Here is your empty, project whatever you want. It's your house. It's your, it's your two-bedroom apartment in the hills, whatever. Okay. But look at it. The poor guy, he's sitting on a hardwood floors. You need furniture. Need or want? Oh, some of you with the cushy uh, derrieres want a place to sit, right? What are you going to do in that room, right? Sit on the floor? So you go to Pottery Barn, right? You drop three or four bills on a couch. Then, of course, you got the, then you got a need and want thing in Pottery Barn. Do you want leather or denim? Need, want. Which one is it, right? Maybe you're really savvy and you decide, you know what? I, I'm going to be biblical. I'm going to buy a futon. It's a couch and a bed, right? Well, we're savvy. You're killing two birds with one stone, right? You're living large in the 70s, go. Uh, now, okay, so let's say you got your couch. What are you going to do now when you sit on that couch in your apartment? You're going to stare at the walls? TV. Oh. <laughs> Everyone was one except Chris who got high definition. He's like, need. I convinced my wife on this. Uh, You've got to be informed. I mean, how would it look at work if you don't see must-see TV? You've got to be culturally plugged in. All right, at least for the news and weather, right? So you go to Best Buy and you get a TV. Flat screen or plasma? Plasma, definitely. It's a need, right? So you drop whatever it is, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever. If you're going to have a fine piece of engineering like that, you're not just going to want network television, are you? You can't have a TV and be stuck with four channels. You need cable. Cable. Want or need? Can you hope to be well-informed without it? (laughs) Reality, for a lot of those new, actually high-definition televisions, you actually have to subscribe to a whole premium package requiring special feeds to maximize your viewing experience. So now you've got cable, $49.95 a month. What about HBO? (laughs) Want or need? Or just bad TV? (laughs) Here's, Here's what you do need. For only $30 more a month, you get the Internet, too. 
And you've got to stay connected. So now you've got a monthly $80 cable bill, too. And at this point, with your $1,000 a month rent, $400 sleeper sofa from Pottery Barn, $750 TV, $80 cable, you're thinking, I need a job. <laughs> so you go and get a job, and, but now you're not going to be there to see all your favorite shows, so of course you need TiVo, <laughs> which only costs an initial $300 outlay. And, and you know, want or need, hey. Never before in society has the line between wants and needs been so effectively blurred by Madison Avenue. The stuff we consider the basics of living in a 21st century world may appear actually basic or essential to us. But they're really the wants and desires for more, more comfort, more experience that lead to our financial ruin. But you see how easily it is, right? With just a basic room to slide merrily down the path of financial oblivion. It's like you pull that thread and, and up the ante of what you really need, and you quickly find yourself neck deep in debt. This is before you even get to, like, you know, the bedroom with, like, pillow shams and bedding and all that garbage. Needs and wants. Paul tells us that when we fail to distinguish between the two, what happens? We fall into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Not just financial calamity, but debt also has spiritual consequences, according to Paul. He says some people have even wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Look at that phrase that he puts there at the end of the passage. Do you know financial grief piercing yourself? The pain and sorrow that comes from being up to your neck in bills. Stuff you've bought but you can't really afford. Debt literally has a spiritual component, according to Scripture. It can blind our eyes, shipwreck our faith, and lure us into destruction. It's no wonder that Paul writes flatly, godliness with contentment is great gain. He who is able to say enough is the man that's truly rich. That statement's again echoed in Hebrews 13.5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So that's the first thing that the Bible highlights as a leading cause of debt, a lack of contentment. But there's a second factor that leads to debt, and again, it's a lack in our character, and that's a lack of patience. (laughs) We not only think we know what we need, but we feel we need to make it happen now. (laughs) We're not content with God's timing for purchases, and we rush ahead and purchase things that only contribute to greater indebtedness. Now, there are small and large examples of, of lacks of patience that lead to indebtedness. The first one would be like impulse spending. How many of you are suckers for the magazine rack while you're standing in line to get your coffee? Okay, like 7-Eleven, magazines, right? Coffee itself, whatever it is. Clothes, you know, I was just going in to get a pair of sneakers, but now I'm coming out with a belt too and the blazer and a pair of pants. Or, or going to TJ Maxx with no particular thing in mind. <laughs> And, and you come out with, with a bag full of stuff you didn't even know you needed till you got there. <laughs> the second would be like a spend-it-all mentality, right? Like you need, let's say you need a t-shirt. So you go to the mall and you go into the gap. And you look for one, you're like, you know, I should be able to get a t-shirt for like nine, ten bucks. And you find a t-shirt you like, and as you're headed to the register, a girl kind of intercepts you. She says, hey, great shirt. Did you know, though, this is kind of fortuitous that you came in on. All right, they don't know the word fortuitous in the gap, but they say fortuitous. You came in on this day because two-for-one deal. If you buy another one of those T-shirts, you get one free. You can actually get three T-shirts for only 20 bucks. I can't believe you came in today. And suddenly you're a chump if you don't take advantage and end up spending $20 instead of the 10 you were planning on. Those are two very small examples, but the real lack of patience 
that ruins most folks come with bigger purchases, like housing or transportation. I call these the big-ticket blunders. And behind them is a fundamental distrust of God's goodness and timing. I'm not trying to spiritualize here, but at its heart, whenever we take on more than we can handle financially, we're doubting that God's going to provide for us. And we certainly don't like his timing. We want it now, whether it's a new home or a new car. And we want it on our timetable, not his. Often feeling like if we don't make it happen, it may never happen at all. So we take on more responsibilities that we can handle that plunges us into debt. Skip over to verse 17 in 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present world, that would be the majority of us, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Lack of patience. We don't really believe that God will richly provide us with everything for our enjoyment. So maybe you're just getting married and you have the natural desire. Again, it's a good desire for, for, for a home, for a new home. That's a fine desire, good dream. But are you willing to wait? <laughs> Most of us aren't. And it's devastating because when we allow ourselves to doubt God's generosity and his timing, we actually race ahead of him at our peril. Do you know what the number one cause of debt is, actually? Home purchases. Unmanageable home purchases are the number one big-ticket blunder that leads to unmanageable debt. Nearly every family in America dreams of owning their own home, but many times you try to buy a home actually too soon after marriage. Or you actually pay too much for a first home and end up in financial trouble. Unfortunately, quite often families don't realize that owning the home created their financial problems because it took too large a portion of their spendable income. The actual percentage of an average family's budget that should be spent on a house payment is no more than 25% of net spendable income. That's after tithes, after taxes. Add to the, that to the mortgage payment and the cost of insurance, utilities, maintenance, repairs, telephone. The percentage climbs to about 38%. Okay? Unfortunately, many couples commit as much as 60% or more of their budget to housing because there's, there's no way to handle that cost. Second most common purchase that leads to debt? Anyone? Purchase of a new car. Quite often, couples who cannot qualify to buy a home actually buy a new car as a compromise. <laughs> it's a major debt trap for couples, especially those who have a tendency to overspend because they're generally not concerned with the overall price of a car. You're just worried about what? The monthly payments. A new car debt is actually harder to deal with than overspending on a home because in most areas of the country, homes can be resold at or above their original price because the market for housings, used housing is always larger than new. But a family that's seeking to sell an almost new car to relieve debt, whew, you'd be shocked to discover how little that car worth is on the open market. The minute you drive out of the showroom, it depreciates. And most families own more on a car that is one-year-old than its actual value. That's why saving in order to purchase a good used car is actually a wiser decision than financing or purchasing a new one. So impulse purchases, a spend-it-all mentality, and big-ticket blunders are all examples of a lack of patience that leads to debt. And as I said, if you look one layer beneath the impatience, often what you'll find is a basic trust, lack of trust in God's goodness and his timing. Some of us have to actually learn to trust that God will provide for us as he promised he would if we wait. If we wait, he'll provide. If we wait, he'll satisfy us with the best possible gifts. We actually don't have to run out ahead of him. In fact, we do only to our peril. 
Now, finally, the third thing that contributes to debt is simply, not fancy, the Tenth Commandment. Anyone know that one? Thou shalt not covet, or in today's vernacular, thou shalt not compete with the Joneses. <laughs> Maybe you have the one-up mentality. Guys are especially good at this, right? I've told you about my tech stuff, right? Chris gets the Nano. I think the Nano's pretty cool, but I'm going to get the 30-gig iPod. And Mike sees a 30-gig, and he says, I got video. And then she says, I see your video, and I raise you a 60-gig iPod, right? Up and up and up the ladder, you're always trying to one-up. That's called coveting, actually. <laughs> it can be subtle, Say you're going to dinner with friends, right? And your girlfriend gets a new outfit. And you were perfectly content with what you had. But now, next to her, you feel frumpy. (laughs) So you go to the mall and you get a new outfit, right? And and you know what? You actually splurge for new shoes, too, because she's going to wear her old pumps. This is going to make me stand out. You're in competition. But you didn't realize the competition was to see who could get into the most debt, (laughs) You're keeping up with the Joneses, but you didn't realize the Joneses are broke. (laughs) That spirit of coveting and competition will take you to the financial poorhouse. The most bedrock verse about the ugly reality of debt is found in Proverbs 22.7, which reads, The borrower is a servant to the lender. (laughs) There's that language of slavery again. Remember Jesus said you can't serve both. You will be a servant or a slave to one and wind up hating the other. And many of us are servants or slaves to MasterCard, to Visa, or American Express. Or the wise guy somewhere in the balcony is going, well, well, I got Discover, I get cash back. (laughs) Yeah, 1.4% on 22% paid out. Great math, you're really putting it over on them. (laughs) The borrower is a servant to the lender. That's the language of slavery. Every time you sign up for any kind of debt, you're surrendering a huge price of freedom. You're giving it to a company or a creditor that's going to be a taskmaster. The lender says, jump, and you have to say, how high? Think about all the freedoms you give up. As John Ortberg's book on stewardship notes, debt obligates you to earning pressures, right? A lot of us know a lot about that. When you're nostril deep in debt, (laughs) any ripple of disruption to your income stream is like (laughs) life-threatening. These days, one income stream is rarely enough to keep abreast of the payments. You'd better have two jobs and never miss a day of work. The mere mention of layoffs keeps you living in a constant panic. There's not a lot of freedom in that. Debt also undermines joy. I mean, think about it. When you're in debt, how do you really enjoy a dinner out with your family or friends? Or a weekend away when you're in debt? Somewhere deep in your conscience, you're saying to yourself, I shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be buying that. Not in the financial condition we're in. Debt robs your joy like nothing else. And most significantly, debt erodes, as we've learned, giving opportunities. When you're deep in debt and a wonderful giving opportunity comes along, the chance to say help a loved one or or help the poor or or the cause of Christ in the world, and your heart says, I would love to do that, but your wallet says, ah, it's not there to give. It's a huge tension, folks, for a Christ follower to have a heart that's overflowing with compassion, but a financial statement overflowing with debt. This really is why the devil takes MasterCard. That was our, our tagline for this message series, right? Because in the end, it's not about what's in your wallet. It's about what's in your heart. And if you have to give your heart to racking up up debt so you can keep up with the Joneses, you can't be like Jesus. You can't give your heart to two masters. You can't experience the fruits of the Spirit while being a slave to debt. So money management, what's your plan? (laughs) Do you even have one? (laughs) 
Because most young adults of my generation, quite honestly, know more about managing our debt between multiple no-interest cards <laughs> than we do about God's plan for managing money. How do you even begin to dig out of debt? The point tonight is not to leave despairing because Scripture doesn't simply raise this issue to make folks feel bad. But God actually gives a distinct plan for handling money God's way. And the Bible actually includes several foundational principles for getting out of debt. And that's what I want to share with you in our time remaining. These are four principles that are tools. Tools for getting out of debt and onto God's path to financial sanity. And the first step involves simply getting an accurate read of what your current situation is. Because although many of you have been, you know, honest about the fact that you owe money, you have no idea how much. You're like, $8,000? Literally, if I asked you exactly how much you owe in debt, could you actually give me a number? Not a round number. Not like, yeah, we owe a couple thousand. (laughs) I mean a hard number. I have in my notes, and this is where the crowd will go silent. Don't get freaked out. (laughs) That's our first basic step to getting out of debt. Determine what you own, and then determine what you owe. Proverbs 27, 23, and 24 is our orienting scripture for this principle. Now, this is the Proverbs writer. This is the smartest man in the history of civilization, and he counsels us. He says, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Now, I realize we're not all sheep herders. In modern parlance, though, that might be translated, be sure you know the condition of your stocks. (laughs) Take stock of what you own, your assets, your earnings, not the round number. I earn $40,000 a year. No, what you actually take home. You've got to get a clear picture of what God has actually put at your disposal. And that's identifiable, like, that's called net spendable income. What's left after taxes and other deductions are taken out. This is actually what you have to live on. And most of us generally have no idea. (laughs) If you earn $40,000, you don't have 40 grand to live on. I'm like expecting a gasp at some point, like, (gasps) or someone to plunge from the balcony. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Most likely you have somewhere closer to $25,000 if you earn 40. I know that can be depressing, but it's essential you get an accurate read on that real number, what you own. And then you determine what you owe. Now think about what you owe. What are the basics, right, that you spend as a, on a weekly or monthly basis, right? Could be housing, rent, utilities, all that stuff, right? Gas, heat, water, transportation, okay? Pretty, pretty real need where we live in the East Coast. Clothes, basic clothes for work, maybe child care. The recurring expenses that you are billed for regularly. And that includes both basic needs like electric as well as what wants that you've assumed are needs like cable or the internet. And then you take stock of what you owe in terms of debt, okay? That's the second thing. That's second kind of debt. And that's what I'm talking about, like school loans, credit cards, mortgages. Now, now this is an important distinction here because you need to know what you owe in terms of both secure and unsecure debt. Now, you need to understand this. The Bible does not look down on all kinds of debt, only a certain kind. And it's called unsecure debt. The Bible isn't completely against debt. For example, like a mortgage. I'm going to give you an example of a secure debt. Okay? Mortgage, a home purchase. You're assuming that I'm going to spend this money and that my house, my investment, is actually going to appreciate, as most homes do. Another example of secure debt would be like education. 
Education is considered a secure debt by some because the more you learn, presumably your education will increase your earning power. So there's a return for secure debt of education or school loans. But when the Bible criticizes debt, it's primarily talking about unsecure debt. That means credit cards. The stuff we buy that depreciates the moment we take it home. And that includes the small, right, the Starbucks coffee, the dinner out, the trip abroad, the vacation, consumables and expenses that are are just experiences. Likewise, unsecured debt includes all the stuff that we typically buy day-to-day at the mall, all right? The new shows, the iPod, CDs, DVD player, the new couch, the barbecue grill for the spring. All of it's destined for the junk heap, and you can never resell it for what you paid. That's unsecure. You just buy something and try to resell it on eBay for full price, you'll see what I mean. (laughs) It's not just small stuff, but it's big stuff too. A car is the best example of unsecured debt. You will never get returned back on it. And it's the unsecure expenses that we rack up that really sink us. Paying for something that won't last with money we don't have. And that's the majority of debt that most Americans carry to the tune of $8,000 on average. Keeping up with the minimum payments, monthly expenses when notes come due, it's crippling for most. So that's step number one. Determine first what you own, what you bring home, exactly how much you have to live on. Then determine what you owe. Take a Saturday. Get out all your bills and figure out an exact number that you're in debt. I know it's sobering, it's intimidating, but it's the first step to becoming a responsible steward of God's money. Now, the second thing I want to share with you is called the 70% principle. My friend Nelson Searcy from the city introduced me to this concept. And it take, makes for me a lot of sense, both practically, but also from a biblical perspective. Let's say, we're going to use 40000 kind of a round number here, a median, okay? Let's say you make $40,000. If that was, um, let me see, let me see what I got on me, cash. Rare, rare moment. Actually, I had to go to the ATM. I was like, all right. <laughs> uh, $10 bill, okay? Let's say this represents your $40,000. Let's see how well you paid attention last week. There's my $10. And I want to manage my $10 God's way. How would you divide it up? As I introduced to you last week, that first dollar is going to go to whom? God. The first 10% goes to God. And that's what we call the tithe. Last week we learned about the 10th floor or the starting point for financial giving. Remember how we noted, we said, wow, contrary to popular misconceptions, the tithe is not a tip for a good church service. (laughs) Nor is it a religious tax that God wants to exact. Everyone gets a pound of flesh, God gets his too. No, we learned that it's an example of first fruits giving that declares actually everything I have, this is all from God. And he deserves my best, not what's left over. And so I am giving him my first 10%. And one of the ways we worship God and keep money in its rightful place in our life is by bringing this first fruits 10% of our earnings to our local church. And that's not something pastors or churches made up (laughs) to keep them in business. This is God's idea. And what we were surprised to discover is that tithing is not so much a test, actually, of our generosity, but of whose? God's. Remember in Malachi 3, verse 7 through 10, God says to his people, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Bring the whole tithe, that is the first 10%, off the gross, not the net, pre-tax earnings. Don't wait for the government to take a bite and give the leftover. Bring it into the storehouse. 
The storehouse we learned in the Old Testament was the treasury in the Jewish temple. In our day, it's the local church of Jesus Christ. So God says, bring that first 10% to the church, and then he says this to the people, chilling, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. In other words, God says, you really want my blessing on your house, on your finances, then give back to me first. Honor me. The whole thing, 10%. Test my character. New chance for you to experience my provision. See if I won't provide for you. See, see when my children give back to me first out of obedience, when they prioritize my purposes above actually their own, then I am the one who takes responsibility for looking out for their well-being as they sacrifice. I bless them. This is not health and wealth gospel. I sometimes bless them materially, yes, but often intangibly, perhaps with a sense of of contentment or peace they have not known before as they get right with me in this area. This is both a challenge and a choice, okay, that, that God lays before his followers in Malachi. It's a challenge to test God, test his goodness in the area of finances, and then a choice. Do you want your financial life to be blessed? Or, as verse 9 says, cursed. <laughs> you can keep 100% of what you have and not tithe. But understand, it's not something I can bless. You're under a curse because you're robbing me. Or you can keep 90% of what I entrust to you, and you'll be blessed. See if I won't shower you with enough that you won't be able to handle all of it. And this is counterintuitive to those of us struggling with debt, isn't it? I mean, see, some people, quite honestly, let's be honest, say, I'm in debt, and I actually need to save Tim. And so you look for ways to cut back, and you figure, well, minimally, I'm not going to tithe. I'm going to stop tithing. (laughs) They stop giving to God so they can pay off their loans and their creditors. And then they can't figure out why I can't seem to get out of debt. (laughs) Why? Because God can't bless you now. You've blocked God's blessing by putting him second. Capital One is king. He gets the first. First fruits. God gets your leftovers. Or nothing at all, maybe. And he gets stuck in a debt trap. That's not an approach to money management that God blesses. His word is clear. Bring me the whole tithe. The first fruits of your harvest. Test me. Test me. And see if I won't bless you. So when we take this crucial step of getting on track God's way, we have an important thing at work for us. You not only have the seedlings of a plan to pay off your debt, now you have a power behind that plan. See, when we pay our debts to God first, we incur his blessing to help us pay our debts to men. But when we rob God to pay men, we rob ourselves of his blessing. It's funny, and this is going to, again... You believe this to be true? It could be argued that some of us don't have enough money because we don't give away enough in the first place. You've got to believe that God will honor you, that you've given him your first fruits. Test him in that and see if he's faithful. Don't let debt be the thing that keeps you from getting in on the 10th floor. I know there's some diversity of opinion when it comes to this. You know, should I pay off my debt before tithing? But, but again, it's a decision you have to make. It's before you. Would you rather be in debt to MasterCard or to God? (laughs) Better to rob the credit card companies than to rob God, in my book at least. Best way to start giving back to God is is, um, 
what's his is by harnessing the power of automation. I talked about this with you last week. I introduced you to this, this sheet. And we put it again in your bulletin. We only do it a couple times a year. But um, this is the EFT sheet, the electronic fund transfer form, right? We said this is an easy way for you to begin tithing and ensure that God actually receives your first fruits. When you're paid, it's a bank, it's a bank form. That's all it is. You decide what you want the bank to send to your tithe, to the church, and it automatically does it for you whenever you want to start and whenever you want to stop. Now, Colleen and I are actually signed up for this, as are many of our leaders here at Liquid, and I want to strongly encourage, recommend you consider joining us because it brings a whole new level to commitment to doing right by God financially. It actually, I don't trust myself sometimes enough. <laughs> I'm like, I just need that to go. That's God's. I don't even want to be tempted. Like, should I bring it or not? No more worrying about, you know, what do I owe? You ever do that one? You forget to bring something to church, and you, or you miss church, you go on vacation or a trip, you're gone for three weeks, and you're like, what do I owe? Starts feeling like a tax or a test when you let it mount up. No more scrounging for something in my wallet. Oh, here we go, offering plate thing. Okay, I'm glad they turned the lights off here. Automate it. Be a systematic giver to God. And I should also exhort you too, don't, do not use your credit card to tithe. <laughs> I'm assuming this is, everyone knows this, right? <laughs> They don't laugh because you can donate online at liquidchurch.com through a secure server, okay? And those financial donations to our ministry are done through credit card. But that's for convenience, for like regular people who are not here, okay? Maybe people who like listen on the web or something, that's great. But you don't put yourself in more debt. Online giving is great, but it's not the best way. In fact, it's interesting. Every gift that we get online, the credit card companies takes out about 4 to 5% of every gift that we receive. Not bad. Okay, so first 10% goes to tithe. Second 10%, anyone want to take a guess? Pay off what you owe. Psalm 37.21 says, The wicked borrow and do not repay. Now, this is strong language here. It's why everyone gets squeamish around the Old Testament. <laughs> it calls borrowers wicked because they don't repay. And you might say, well, all right, I'm not wicked, <laughs> Look, actually, I've never defaulted on a loan. I pay my credit card bill every month. Perhaps, but here's a newsflash, that doesn't necessarily mean you're paying your debts. (laughs) See, one of the reasons we never repay is because credit cards are not designed to be repaid. (laughs) The credit card companies are actually banking their whole enterprise on your inability to repay what you owe them. That's why they so graciously invite you to make what? The... Minimum payment possible. Why? Because they love you? (laughs) No. It's because when you make the minimum payment, you barely touch the principal of your original expense. And you'll hopefully wind up paying them more and more interest over time. I want you to think about that. A whole system based on bad faith on the hope that you won't be able to honor your obligations. That's wicked. (laughs) And this is why the Bible calls debt a trap. I'll show you what I mean. Say, you're, say you are average and you have like $7,500 worth of debt on your credit cards. And I know some of you are above average. <laughs> Let's start with an average amount. And today you hear this message on debt and you decide, you know what? This madness stops. This is it. Today I'm getting out of debt. I'm stopping my spending. And then I'm going to figure out what the minimum monthly payment is. And I'm going to do it until it's all paid. Well, here's the reality. If you actually do that, you stop spending... You don't add a single dollar more to that debt of $7,500. You diligently make the minimum payment until that debt's canceled. How long do you think it would take you to pay off that debt? $7,500. Anyone? 30 years and two months. 
And do you know how much you will have paid to get rid of that $7,500 debt? Total of $23,000 over the course of your convenience credit card spending. How convenient for Capital One. You need an attack plan to pay off your debts with that second 10%. Here's how you start. And it actually begins with some contrarian wisdom again. What you do is you list your bills actually from greatest to smallest. And then you actually pay. Does anyone take a guess? The smallest amount first. Not the greatest, but you start with the smallest of your bills. And you pay that incrementally every week, every month, whenever it comes due, with that second 10% of your income. Then, once that little bill is paid off, the next month you apply the same amount of money to the next smallest debt and on up the list. So say, for example, you got like three different debts, 1000 bucks, 5000 and 10000 First you make payment on that 10000 you pay it off. And then once that debt's cleared, you take that payment you were making on 1000 and you add it to the minimum payment on the $5,000 debt and begin paying that down. And then you, you work that cycle up to your greatest debt. You stop spending. And then you start paying the smallest of your debts first incrementally. But Now, by the way, I'm assuming you, you understand it's implicit in this principle. You stop spending, right? I like, didn't even list that as a bullet point. <laughs> well, you pay off your debt. You don't incur new ones. I mean, you know what the first rule is if you find yourself in a hole. Stop digging. <laughs> that goes without saying, okay? While you're working on your debts, you don't add more. I mean, before you can actually can heal and get healthy, you have to first stop the bleeding. It doubles back on our original verse in Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You stop spending, you begin paying your debts with that second 10%, and then with that third 10%, then... You start saving. That third 10%. This goes to savings. Now, in previous generations, someone who didn't spend but saved what he had was called a miser. Today, he's called a miracle. (laughs) Most of us are not natural-born savers. (laughs) The World War II generation who experienced the Depression had an appreciation for saving. But their kids, our parents... The baby boomers were terrible savers, hence the, you know, crisis with Social Security. But our generation is even worse, less percentage than our parents even saving for later on in life. For many of us, actually, save is a four-letter word. (laughs) Yet, it's an essential part of managing money God's way. And the Bible gives us this unusual model for saving. It's a very insignificant creature called the ant. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. This is so great. I love this. The wise man says... Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Now, you guys know the ant, small, but one of the most industrious creatures in God's kingdom. And scripture says, I want you to take a magnifying glass and put it on that little bugger, but don't fry him. Look at him. (laughs) Inspect him. Consider his ways and be wise. That is... You should have an ant-like approach to savings. Why? What does an ant do? It stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. In other words, it saves what it has when it has extra so that it has enough when things are scarce later on in the season of life. And if you practice this basic method of saving, it will likely save you a lot of heartache and grief at some future point in your life, which may not be actually as far away as you think. Most financial counselors will advise you that you should have three to six months worth of earnings in the bank for emergencies. 
emergencies like actually a job decline, you lose your job, injury, or a health issue. Three to six months in liquid savings that you can access easily. And then you should have as much as you can stored up in investments. That includes, you know, whatever, whatever those things are, whether they're IRAs, mutual funds, that sort of thing. I'm not going to get into specifics about that. This is not a message about investment advice. And most of you are much more knowledgeable and savvy about that area of finance than I am, that's for sure. But you save 3 to 6% of liquid capital, and then you invest the rest. You put your money to work for you so that you have the ability, potentially, to be financially free later in life when you retire and no longer have a job. Savings is about discipline. Jesus said a lot about stewardship, didn't he? In fact, he noted that if you're faithful with a little here in life, it qualifies you to be entrusted with even greater things in the life to come. But when it comes to money, if we're not disciplined to rightly handle the little that we've been given, this temporal money we have here on earth, then how can you be entrusted with even greater rewards in the kingdom of God? That's a paraphrase of Jesus. Handling money with the discipline of savings is a primary indicator, not only of financial sense, but of spiritual maturity. So if you want to bring order to your checking account, it's time to open a savings one too. All right? Review. First 10% goes to who? God. Second 10% to? Pay off debts. Third 10% goes to? Savings. And lastly, you learn to live on 70%. What's left over? Even if your salary goes up, your lifestyle does not. You stick with 70%. One of the reasons so many of us are stuck in debt is because we're not living on 70%. We're not even living on 80 or 90%. We're giving it the old American trend, living on 110%, right? (laughs) This is one of the areas where God's like, no, don't give 110%. Remember the treasure principle that Randy Alcorn coined, right? When God prospers us, it's not to raise our standard of living. It's to raise our standard of giving. And if you devote yourself to the principle of living on 70%, even if your salary goes up or you come into some unexpected money, God brings amazing opportunities to you. I'll give you an example of that. Many of you know the name Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church out in California. Um, He's an example of a small guy that kind of made it big. He wrote a little book called, um, what is that? Uh, Purpose Driven Life. (laughs) Which just this year has become the best-selling nonfiction book in American history. It's sold over 25 million copies, and it has been the best-selling book worldwide for the last three years. As you can see, he was named in the top 25 most influential evangelicals in America in, the, uh, in Time magazine. And um, as you might imagine, selling 25 million books has done a few things for Rick Warren. <laughs> but I've seen him interviewed, and the coolest thing is that such success has not changed Rick Warren the person. In fact, in a recent interview I came across, I have the magazine here. The interviewer asked him what he was going to do with his newfound affluence. And I was like, that's a polite term. Newfound affluence, right? Think about it. If he gets $10 for every one of his 25 million books sold, what is that? $250 million. We're talking about a former local pastor who has come into about a quarter of a billion dollars in royalties. All right? This Christ follower is coming to some serious money, obscene amounts of cash. So what's he decided to do with his newfound affluence? And he answered him straight up. He goes, actually, my wife Kay and I decided on four things. One, first... We said we are not going to change our lifestyle one bit. We didn't go out and buy a bigger house. We didn't own a guest home. I still drive a four-year-old Ford truck. And we said simply, we are not going to use this money on ourselves. Second, 
I stopped taking a salary at Saddleback Church. I added up all that the church had paid me for the previous 25 years, and I gave it back. I didn't want anyone to think that we did this for the money. I knew the stereotypes that the media had of megachurch pastors. And I knew God was raising me up to a position of prominence, and I was going to be in the spotlight. So I said, I've got to be above reproach. And sure enough, the very next week after we gave 25 years worth of money back, time comes to do an article on me. And the very first question was, what's your salary? You know what I was able to say? Well, honestly, I've served my church for free for 25 years. It felt so good to just pop that stereotype. The third thing we did was to set up three different foundations. One is called Acts of Mercy, which helps those with HIV and AIDS in Africa, both affected and infected. Another is called Equipping the Church, which keeps training the pastors we've been training in the third world. And then the third is called the Global Peace Plan. Peace stands for plant churches, equip servant leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, and educate the next generation, all in sub-Saharan Africa. Finally, the last thing is that actually how this has affected my life is that my wife and I, Kay, became reverse tithers. When Kay and I got married 30 years ago, we started raising our tithe every year by 1%. So after the first year of marriage, we went to 11%. Second year, 12 Third year, 13 and so on. And we did that because we found that every time we give, it broke the grip of materialism in our life. It made us more like Jesus. It makes my heart grow bigger every time I'm generous. Well, now we've been married 30 years and we actually give away 90% and live on 10. And honestly, that's just a whole lot of fun to us. And really, I don't have a lot of needs. I just need to replace socks occasionally. If we have food and clothes, we will be content with that. We reverse tithers. We give away 90 and live on 10. You want to know, personal opinion, why I think Rick Warren was entrusted by God with such extraordinary affluence influence? Because God knew he could handle it. That he would be a good steward. And understand that when God prospers us, it's not to raise our standard of living necessarily, but to raise our standards of giving to the things that are close to God's heart. The reality is that one of the ways that God allows us to get in on what he's doing in the world is actually for us to first get out of debt and begin managing our finances according to his kingdom priorities. So I'll end with a simple question, and it's not what's in your wallet. It's what's your plan? (laughs) What's your plan to get out of debt? That's a challenge I want to leave you with if you're an average American consumer. Do you even have a plan to get out of debt this year? Do you have any idea what you owe? an accurate understanding of what you own? Have you taken the first step and made a commitment, actually, to first give God what is his, that first 10%, and then to pay down your debts with the second 10%, and finally begin saving towards financial freedom? I've given you a basic framework here tonight, the 70% principle, and you know what? That's a solid introduction to sound financial planning, but it's obviously a bit more complex than this. (laughs) And so there are resources we're making available to help you with that. Crown Financial, you've heard kind of promoted over the last couple weeks, that is a 10-week study. It's a small group we're offering that provides practical guidance on how to manage your money God's way. It runs on Sunday afternoons from 3 to 5. It's right before this worship service. And it's about developing practical skills that, that include like making a budget. How do you make a budget? Reducing debt, saving. How do you start investing for the future? 
I was talking with Dave Brooks, who's kind of overseeing it. Graduates have confirmed that, like, you know, marriages are strengthened. Individuals find their way out of debt. Most importantly, people enter a closer relationship with Jesus Christ as you learn to apply his word in this vital area of money and possessions. Now, Erica mentioned last week that there is a charge of $50 for materials for this group. And the irony is not lost on us. <laughs> that it's one of the only small groups that has an entry fee. And this isn't our way of, like, inviting you to take on added debt, like, all right, I guess I can charge it, you know. No. <laughs> if you really have a problem with that amount and you, you can't afford the materials, but you really want to learn how to get your financial house in order in 2006, just talk with me, talk with Dave Brooks. Dave, can you wave to everybody? Midpoint over there in the sanctuary, thank you. And we're going to figure out a way to work with you, okay? All right. Let's stand uh, to close in prayer, okay? Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you that um, we don't have to despair when it comes to debts we owe. Uh, More than anything else, Jesus, you've shown us what it's like to pay down the greatest of debts known to man. Lord, with your very lifeblood, you have paid our debt to God, Jesus. And we want to thank you for your sacrifice on the cross that put us in right standing with God the Father. Lord, we thank you for, for canceling our debt of sin, just wiping our accounts clean and paying for our freedom in full. And so now we want to ask, Lord, that you begin the process of bringing your power and your freedom to bear on this crucial aspect of our financial lives. Lord, for those of us who feel hopeless, I want to ask you to breathe new hope in them. Lord, for those of us out of control, would you bring patience and discipline? For those of us who lack wisdom, would you bring counsel, bring new skills, Lord? You paid a costly price to purchase our freedom, Father. And we don't want to give it back to the bondage of indebtedness. We want to be your slave, Jesus, not MasterCards. So empower us to give, Lord, as you've so richly given us all things through your Son, Christ Jesus. In his name we ask, all God's people said, Amen.